1: This episode contains distressing themes, descriptions of sexual violence, and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, Manassas, Virginia is an independent city in the north of the state. Manassas was an evolving city, 30 miles from Washington, D.C., with historical links to the American Civil War that drew enthusiasts to the site of the Battle of Bull Run. With a population of just under 30,000 people in 1993, Manassas was thrown into the spotlight and the city would forever be linked to one of the most sensational cases of our time. Hello listeners, I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to episode 40 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. In the early hours of June 23rd, 1993, John Wayne Bobbitt was sleeping off the effects of a night out. The 26-year-old ex-Marine had been out with a friend from New York, Robert Johnson, from about 8 p.m., and crawled into bed beside his wife just after 3 a.m. Their second-floor Maplewood Park apartment was quiet. John was momentarily roused from his sleep around an hour later when he felt Lorena put her arms around him. As he drifted off once again, the feeling of a sharp tug jolted him awake but in his intoxicated state, he failed to realize that he had been cut with a knife and blood was pooling on the mattress. When he finally registered what had happened, he pulled on a pair of shorts and grabbed the bed sheet before bunching it against the wound and going to wake Robert. Still half asleep, Robert had gone to brush his teeth, not realizing the urgency of the situation. But when John appeared in the doorway and told him they needed to go, Robert ran out to the car, and they raced to Prince William Hospital. John seemed to be unfazed by the injury. He paused to speak with someone he knew in the emergency room, before being approached by Dr. Stephen Sharp. Seeing the bloody sheet wrapped around John's hand, which was held against his groin, Dr. Sharp asked John to show him his wrist, as he assumed that's where the injury was. John shook his head and dropped the sheet, revealing that his penis had been cut off. Dr. James T. Sain, a urologist, was called into the hospital to consult about a patient whose penis had been amputated at the base. He arrived shortly before 6 a.m. and found John lying on a gurney. Dr. Sain said, He was on his back, and there was just a clot left for where there should have been a penis. The arteries and veins that supply blood to the penis had spasmed and caused a clot to form, which prevented John from bleeding out, but John didn't know where his penis was. Officers were dispatched to the apartment to search for the missing appendage. A trail of blood along the cream-colored carpets led to the bedroom, where the puddle of congealing blood was soaking through the mattress. Officers combed through the bedsheets, looked under the bed, rifled through drawers, and even checked the washing machine— but they failed to locate the severed penis. The surgeon's options were rather limited as a result, and he told John that the best they could do was close over the stump and that he would have to sit down to use the bathroom for the rest of his life. As John was being prepped for surgery, a call came in from his wife's boss, Jana Basuti. Lorena had driven to her employer's house in a panic, and Jana initially assumed that Lorena had been assaulted by John, but Lorena started screaming that she had cut John's penis off. Jana tried to calm Lorena down, but she was inconsolable on her boss's living room floor. So Jana placed the call to 911 at approximately 5:20 a.m. Lorena was brought to the hospital and was able to tell the police where she thought she had thrown her husband's penis out of the window of her car as she was driving close to their apartment. She had thrown the knife into the trash at the salon, but officers would have to rush to get it because it was collection day. Officers scoured through the knee-high grass at the intersection of Maplewood Drive and Old Centerville Road. They eventually found the severed appendage 13 feet from the road and quickly brought it into a nearby 7-Eleven store and placed it into a hot dog container with ice before it was transported to the hospital. Dr. Sane and the plastic surgeon, Dr. David Berman, were able to successfully reattach John's penis during a a nine-and-a-half-hour surgery, but they could not know if John would regain full function or if he would be a sexual cripple for life. As John was recovering, Lorena was taken to a separate room in the same hospital for a rape examination, because she told police that John had forced himself on her for what would be the final time after years of abuse. Lorena Gallo was born in Ecuador in October 1969. Her family moved to Caracas, Venezuela when she was young. After graduating from high school in her late teens, Lorena moved to the U.S. on a student visa to start living her American dream. Lorena enrolled in the Northern Virginia Community College with ambitions to work in dentistry like her father. She lived with a family friend, Irma Castro, who had daughters close to her own age. Irma was happy to allow Lorena to live with her as she knew the struggles a young immigrant often faced. She was pleased that Lorena was getting high grades in her classes. It was on a night out in late 1988 at the nearby Quantico Marine Corps base that the 19-year-old met Lance Corporal John Wayne Bobbitt. Lorena was a stunning young woman with dark curly hair, and 21-year-old John was a burly young serviceman with good looks and piercing eyes. They hit it off and started dating. Lorena later recalled her first impression of John in an interview with Vanity Fair. She said, I thought John was very handsome. Blue eyes, a man in uniform, you know? He was almost like a symbol, a Marine fighting for the country. I believed in this beautiful country. I was swept off my feet. I wanted my American dream. John recalls Lorena being a shy woman with very little English. After dancing together at the Marine Corps ball, he gave her his phone number. Their courtship consisted of chaperoned dates as John was Lorena's first boyfriend, and she came from a conservative Catholic background. Irma Castro was old-fashioned and was not a fan of Lorena's new boyfriend. She had even contacted Lorena's parents to tell them she had a bad feeling about the young Marine. Irma asked Lorena if she was with John to try and secure her place in America, but Lorena was stunned by the question and repeated that she loved John. John never seemed to pay for anything on their dates. It was Lorena who spent the money she earned as a nanny for Janna Basuti to pay the bill. Lorena had been working as a nanny for Janna for a couple of years, looking after Janna's four-year-old son part-time in Janna's house in Fairfax. Janna was a business owner who had multiple salons in Northern Virginia, and she taught Lorena to drive as well as improve her English. John was from New York. His biological parents were unfit to raise him and his brothers, so he had been taken in by his uncle and raised in Niagara Falls. It was a busy house with six young boys. John felt comfortable enlisting in the Marines after growing up in a testosterone-filled house. Within less than a year, the young couple were married in a private civil ceremony, and Lorena's dream began to crumble. John claimed it was because Lorena had high expectations. He said, Lorena was a good wife a lot of the time, but she was obsessed with having her American dream, her American dream, her American dream. She said it all the time. Jana Basuti had a big house, a cabin cruiser, a Mercedes. Lorena wanted those things. She just wanted too much, too fast. In fact, John claimed they were only married so quickly because Lorena's visa was about to expire. Lorena told a different story. John had been the perfect boyfriend, kind, caring, attentive, but he was not the perfect husband. Just one month into their marriage, Lorena recalled that John hit her after she told him he was driving too fast. Lorena was stunned, but felt as though she had nowhere to go. Her family were in another country, so she went home with John to their small apartment in Manassas. The relationship grew more volatile and after moving into a larger place in Stafford to be closer to the Marine Corps base, a Christmas time argument turned violent. The couple bickered over having an artificial or real Christmas tree. Lorena recalled how John beat her in a fit of anger and then tried to sexually assault her. She said, He kicked me. I fell to the ground. He punched me. Then, he pulled my skirt up. They stayed together, and Lorena got pregnant. She bought a baby's bib to deliver the news to her husband but he wasn't as happy as she thought he would be. Lorena said that John told her he wasn't ready to have children, and he didn't feel like she would be a good mother either, so she reluctantly terminated the pregnancy. After living in Stafford for a little more than a year, the couple purchased their own house, a three-bedroom white-framed home on an acre plot in Manassas, which had a mortgage of $1,300 a month. Here, the police were called to de-escalate domestic disputes on several occasions between August 1990 and April 1991. Normally, it was John or Lorena who called the police to report their spouse, but in January 1991, a neighbor called to report a disturbance at the Bobbitt home. When police arrived, they found Lorena distressed, but she refused to file a complaint against John. The following month, after an argument over John watching pornography on the TV, police found Lorena with a busted lip and numerous facial bruises and had to convince her to file a complaint. After being arrested, John filed a counter-complaint and pleaded guilty to assault and battery. He had to undergo counseling, but the other charges were dropped. John claimed he was never abusive and merely restrained his wife when she got angry at him. He later told ABC News. She got upset if anybody talked to me, any girl, or if I looked in a girl's direction. And she will get mad, just pow, she'd punch me. She'd get mad. She was just a very jealous person, very possessive. Did not want anybody around me. I think she was always afraid someone was going to take me away from her. Like I was her prize, and this is my man. This is my Marine. This is my ticket. Eventually, John was discharged from the Marines in 1991 and struggled to hold down a job. The mortgage repayments on their new home were crippling them, with Lorena being the sole earner. John had not been able to maintain steady employment and bounced from job to job, working as a taxi driver, a waiter, and a bouncer, to name a few. Lorena had gone from working as a nanny to working in one of Jana Basuti's beauty salons, earning commissions for manicures. In June 1991, Lorena was charged with shoplifting after taking a dress from Nordstrom, something she later claimed was because John belittled what she wore. She wanted to look good for him. In October of that year, Lorena began embezzling money from Jana's salon to try and cover their mortgage, but she got caught. Lorena managed to take over $7,000 from Jana's salon before her boss realized. After initially reporting it, Jana dropped the charges. She decided to get Lorena to repay her by taking a lesser cut from the commission. The Bobbitts' house went into foreclosure, and they temporarily separated for almost a year before reconciling in September 1992. Lorena had been back living with Emma Castro, but John was not allowed in the house, so they bounced from place to place before renting the apartment that would later become an infamous crime scene. They had only been living in the apartment for three months by June 1993, but very little had changed between the couple. They continued to have blazing rows, and on June 21st, Lorena went to court to get a restraining order against her husband. But the paperwork would take time, and Lorena would have to wait a few hours to go before the judge, so she left without the restraining order. She had already begun packing her belongings and moving them into a neighbor's apartment, but for the next two nights— She stayed in the home she shared with John, while his friend Robert, who had been invited to spend the summer with a soon-to-be bachelor, slept on the sofa bed in the living room. At around 4.30 a.m. on June 23, 1993, Lorena Bobbitt took an 8-inch kitchen knife into the bedroom. She cut off her husband's penis before fleeing the apartment with the bloody body part still in her hand. While John was undergoing surgery, Lorena was being questioned at Manassas Police Station by Detective Weinz. She told the detective that she was woken up when John and his friend returned home drunk and slammed the door. John got into bed beside her and fell asleep for just over an hour before he woke up and tried to have sex with her. She didn't want to, but she said that John had held her down while he removed her underwear with his foot and proceeded to rape her. In broken English, she told the detective, I tried to scream, but his right shoulder was pushing on my mouth. I couldn't talk or breathe. I tried to push him but I couldn't because he is too heavy for me. John fell asleep immediately after and Lorena went to the kitchen to get a glass of water to try and calm herself down. The light from the open refrigerator illuminated the knife block on the kitchen counter and she brought it into the bedroom. She said, I was angry. I asked him if he was satisfied with what he did and he was just half asleep or something and did not care about my feelings. He always has orgasm and doesn't wait for me to have orgasm. He's selfish. I don't think it's fair. So I pulled back the sheets and I did it. Lorena said that after driving away from the apartment, she found it difficult to steer and realized she still had the severed penis in one hand and the knife in the other. She threw the body part from the driver's side window over the roof of the car, and it landed on the grassy verge along the road where it was later found. She had then driven to her place of work in a state of shock, and when she found it closed, as it was only 5 a.m., she threw the knife into the trash and drove to Jana Basuti's house. Lorena was arrested and released on an unsecured $5,000 bond. She went to stay with Jana Basuti, who was helping Lorena by hiring a lawyer for her, and Lorena also reported John for rape. Because they were married, the legislation regarding spousal sexual abuse meant that there had to be evidence of significant injury to charge John with marital rape. Doctors found evidence that Lorena had sexual contact on the morning of the incident, but they did not feel that it constituted evidence of forcible rape. John was still recovering in hospital, but as a grand jury hearing was underway to indict Lorena on charges of malicious wounding, John surrendered himself to the police to face charges of marital sexual assault. He could not be tried for marital rape because of Virginia's law provisions, which were that the couple had to be estranged at the time of the offense. The victim had to have suffered serious permanent damage. He was also released on a $5,000 bail. While the Bobbitts were awaiting separate trials for crimes that could land them in prison for 20 years each, the media began to swarm in Manassas, enthralled by the bizarre story that centered mostly around John's manhood and whether it was functional yet. The case was polarizing. While some believed that Lorena was an unhinged woman scorned who mutilated her husband because he was leaving her, others thought she was a victim who had been pushed too far. One woman told reporters, when I see men cross their legs when someone mentions this case, I say good, They are feeling just a little bit of what a woman feels every day, the fear of being raped. Newsweek author Barbara Ehrenreich wrote, If a fellow insists on using his penis as a weapon, I say that one way or another, he ought to be swiftly disarmed. John had been advised by his legal counsel to stay out of the media while he prepared to face a trial, but he released a short statement at the beginning of July denying he was abusive. He said, Contrary to a few published reports and the desperate excuses of my wife, Lorena, I did not attack her the night in question. There is, however, no doubt as to the severity of her assault upon me. I understand that she will have to answer for her actions in criminal court. That is entirely appropriate. Lorena was interviewed by ABC, 2020, and Vanity Fair. Lorena told ABC reporter Tom Jarrell that John told his wife that he was excited by forced sex and would choke her and use marine tactics to abuse her throughout their four-year marriage. A statement released by Lorena through her media representative, Alan Haig, read in part, Many people wonder why I didn't leave my husband sooner. Although I thought about it many times, the reason is commitment. Commitment I learned as I grew up in a very loving family in Venezuela. My mother and father have been married for 25 years and are still very much in love. They taught me to be committed to your spouse for life and that divorce wasn't an option. A large part of my American dream was to be married to one man for the rest of my life. I wasn't perfect, but I was dedicated to our success as a young couple and to make our marriage work regardless of the cost. Through it all, I maintained a strong belief in God and continually held out hope that somehow, through counseling and forgiveness, our marriage would eventually be saved. Unfortunately, I have a painful story to tell that many women in America can identify with. I was physically and emotionally violated. The abuse was first emotional, yet quickly turned to physical. Over the last four years, I was the victim of repeated emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. Lorena wrote that she was desperate, but John warned her that he would follow her wherever she went and would force her to have sex with him whenever he wanted. She described how she felt after the alleged rape on the night of the incident and said, I was devastated and humiliated. I was physically and emotionally violated. Everyone has a limit, and this was
0: beyond mine. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. promoted rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: As John's trial for marital sexual assault drew nearer, locals cashed in on the city's new claim to fame, selling T-shirts emblazoned with bloody knives and the words, Manassas, Virginia, a cut above the rest. The trial of John Wayne Bobbitt began on November 8, 1993. It was impossible to find a jury who had not heard of the case. So instead, the lawyers tried to find people with an open mind. A panel of nine women and three men were selected, and the trial began in Prince William Circuit Court. The county's Commonwealth attorney, Paul B. Ebert, was prosecuting. He asked jurors if they could decide if John should be punished beyond the injury that might make them believe that he had already been punished. The prosecutor asked the jury, Do you believe him? or do you believe her? John's defense attorney, Gregory Murphy, said that Lorena's actions were premeditated and that she was jealous of her husband. He said her motive was to get her American dream by any means and reference the media representative Jana had hired for her. He told the jury, she didn't contact a psychiatrist or seek medical attention in the days after the alleged attack. Less than 10 days after the incident, her friend contacted Paradise Entertainment Corporation. Lorena tearfully testified about the events of the five days preceding the incident. She said that after John had raped her, she asked him, how could you do this again and again and again? She referred to a list of women found in their apartment and said that John would taunt her with it as he raped her. The list had checks next to some of the names. When John testified in his own defense, he said they simply indicated whether he was compatible with the woman or not. A neighbor testified that on the night in question, she had spoken to Lorena, who told her that John had been abusing her. The neighbor provided Lorena with leaflets on rape and domestic abuse and urged her to come back if she needed somewhere to stay. The leaflets were on the bedside locker when police entered the bedroom to search for John's missing penis. John denied ever being abusive towards his wife. After two days of testimony, the jury were sent out to deliberate. They returned with a verdict just under four hours later, acquitting John Wayne Bobbitt of marital sexual assault. Jurors later revealed they found the case to be too circumstantial to find him guilty. Outside of the court, John spoke to the media and said, I'm relieved this is all over. I'm thankful that the jury believed me. I just want to get back to living my life. I have a lot of healing to do. John intended to leave Manassas while awaiting Lorena's trial, but he found himself at the center of another legal battle when a woman from his hometown filed a paternity suit that said he had fathered her 10-month-old baby boy. John would ultimately be proven to be the boy's father, but by 1995, he was in and out of court for failing to pay child support. Speaking about the night his penis was cut off... John told the American Journal that he had never been as scared in his whole life as he was then. But he forgave Lorena. He said, I think about her. I'm not angry with her. I feel what she did was wrong, but I'm a very forgiveful person. It would take a lot to get us back together as far as counseling, you know, working things out. The prosecutor, Mr. Ebert, said that the jurors may have been sympathetic towards John because of the injury he sustained. Ebert said, i think all of us feel to an extent that he has already been punished by his victim but she didn't cut it off because he came home late she cut it off because she had enough of the sexual abuse regardless ebert would be prosecuting lorena for malicious wounding at her own trial a few months later before lorena would stand trial john began appearing in the media more frequently most notably the Miss Howard Stern New Year's Eve pageant, which was fundraising to pay for penis reconstructive and enlargement surgery for John Wayne Bobbitt. As viewers pledged their donations, a giant decorative penis prop was used to demonstrate how much money had been raised, which was around $190,000. John had the surgery, which wasn't as successful as he hoped, and used the rest of the money to pay his legal bills for his own trial and the paternity suit. Lorena filed for divorce while John made the most of his newfound fame. Lorena's trial began in January 1994 after numerous delays so she could undergo a psychiatric evaluation as part of her defense that she was temporarily insane at the time of the offense. Unlike John's trial, which seemed to be treated as a warm-up act in the media, Lorena's trial was broadcast on court TV and hundreds of journalists and enthusiasts jostled for seats in the small Manassas courtroom. Lorena's defense team, James Lowe, Blair Howard, and Lisa Kimler, told the jury that Lorena had been subjected to a reign of terror over the course of her marriage to John. She had reacted with an irresistible impulse when she severed his penis on June 23, 1993. Defense attorney Kimmler told the court, What we have is Lorena Bobbitt's life juxtaposed against John Wayne Bobbitt's penis. It was his penis from which she could not escape and... I submit to you that at the end of this case, you will come to one conclusion that a life is more valuable than a penis. The first witness was John. He spoke about the assault and said that he had not been drunk that night and that he recalled initiating sex but falling asleep before it happened. Outside of the court, t shirts John had signed that read, Love Hurts on the back and Manassas Ain't No Place for Weenies, on the front, were sold to the crowds of spectators. The jovial attitude outside of court was starkly contrasted by the solemn nature of another case that was being heard inside, the murder of a two-year-old boy by his abusive stepfather. A number of witnesses testified that John had been abusive and had bragged about enjoying non-consensual sex. Defense attorney Howard asserted that John had said he was excited by hitting women in the behind, making them scream and bleed and crawl, something that John denied but was corroborated by defense witnesses. Two friends testified that John told them he liked to make women squirm and yell for help. Other witnesses gave accounts of seeing John hit or push Lorena. At John's marital sexual assault trial, the testimony was limited to a short time frame, so with Lorena at the defense table her attorneys were able to give a clearer picture of the abuse she had endured. Clients and co-workers from the salon recalled seeing bruises on Lorena's arms and face as she did their manicures. One co-worker said she saw John grab Lorena by the hair in 1990, and he had punched her in the face that same weekend. Another friend saw John pin Lorena against a wall and call her a bitch because she was embarrassed that he had given her lingerie in front of their friends at Christmas. A social worker from the Marine Corps testified that John had admitted to slapping and shoving his wife after knocking her down with the open door of their car as he tried to drive off after having a fight. John told the court it was Lorena who was the aggressor in their marriage. All he ever did was restrain her when she would attack him, which he said could explain the bruises people saw. He said, I don't believe in violence, and I would tell her it's not ladylike. The surgeons responsible for reattaching John's penis testified at length about the procedure, aided by full-color photographs of the bloody stump. On the third day of the trial, Lorena testified in her own defense. She described how John would force her into anal sex, and after injuring her the first time, he would threaten her with the same each time they had sex. Lorena told the court, He tortured me with marine techniques. It was horrible. The following day, she relayed the events that led up to the incident, waking up at 3 a.m. to John attempting to rape her. She said, I said I didn't want to have sex, but he wouldn't listen to me. I tried to keep my eyes closed and my underwear on, but I couldn't. It was hurting me. I felt like my vagina was ripping open or something. Maybe you don't understand because you are a man and he didn't understand because he is a man, but it hurt me. Lorena described John falling asleep straight after and how she went to the kitchen in a panic to drink a glass of water. She saw the light from the fridge reflecting on the large carving knife. Lorena said that the memories of the abuse came flooding back at once. She told the court, I remember the first time he raped me. I remember the put-downs. They were just pictures in my head. I remembered the first time he forced anal sex with me. He hurt me. I remember everything. Everything. Everything but Lorena could not recall slicing off her husband's penis when she was asked to on the witness stand. Dr. Susan J. Feister had spoken with Lorena over numerous sessions totaling 13 hours. The defense psychiatrist said that she believed Lorena was a battered woman who had been suffering from temporary insanity at the time of the offense. Dr. Feister said, her husband psychologically closed off every avenue of escape for her, He told her he would pursue her and find her no matter where she was, that he would come to her and have sex with her any time he wanted, any way he wanted. This created an impasse, a situation that made her crazy. She had a breakdown. She attacked the weapon that was her instrument of torture, that is, her husband's penis. It was this defense that had allowed evidence about the four-year marriage to be heard at Lorena's trial when it had not been permitted at John's. In rebuttal, the prosecution's witnesses testified that Lorena had been a jealous wife who did not want John to leave her. Conflicting opinions from psychiatrists were heard as the trial neared the end, but ultimately, the majority of experts felt that Lorena had been suffering from a mental illness that removed her responsibility for her actions. The jury would agree, and after seven hours of deliberations, Lorena was acquitted on the grounds that she was temporarily insane when she cut off John's penis. Lorena was not immediately released, though she was ordered to spend 45 days in psychiatric treatment at the Central State Hospital in Petersburg. As she left the courthouse, crowds of supporters chanted her name and expressed their elation at the verdict. Following Lorena's acquittal, John moved to Las Vegas and met adult film actor Ron Jeremy at the Playboy Mansion. Six months after the trial had ended, John starred in his own X-rated movie named John Wayne Bobbitt, Uncut. Uncut. A few weeks prior to the release, John had been convicted of misdemeanor domestic battery for assaulting his then ex-fiancee, who he had met during the media frenzy surrounding Lorena's trial. John was sentenced to 60 days in jail, with 45 days suspended, and faced a second domestic battery charge two weeks later. Two years later, John's second X-rated movie, called Frankenpenis, was released. His name appeared in the media numerous times over the following decade for a felony conviction of grand larceny, harassment, multiple domestic battery charges, and a car crash that left him with a broken neck. One of the victims who John had been convicted of harassing said that John had repeatedly beaten and raped her and told her that she was his new Lorena. In an interview with Vanity Fair, he denied ever abusing anyone. He said, I didn't batter Lorena, and those women after Lorena, the ones who were using me, my name, as a stepping stone, I didn't batter them either. I'm a Marine. I'm trained to protect people, not hurt them. Despite everything, John didn't seem to be over Lorena. He told Vanity Fair, If, instead of cutting off my penis that night, she'd just waited until I woke up and talked to me, we'd probably still be married with a family. Their divorce had been finalized in 1995, and Lorena led a quiet life for the most part, aside from being charged with domestic battery for a fight with her mother, something her mother later took responsibility for in court, leading to another acquittal. Lorena brought her family to the U.S. and went back to college, where she met her longtime partner, David Bellinger, with whom she went on to have a child. While Lorena once avoided the publicity that surrounded her, she now uses it as a chance to advocate for victims of domestic abuse. In 2018, Lorena, who goes by her maiden name, established the Lorena Gallo Foundation, a nonprofit that provides domestic violence and sexual assault prevention, intervention, and awareness services in Prince William County, Virginia. According to multiple news outlets, John Bobbitt spends some of his time searching for treasure in the Rocky Mountains, but he still seems preoccupied. John has repeatedly tried to contact Lorena, even more than a decade after the incident that shot them to unwanted fame. He has told her he still loves her and that he misses her very much. Lorena has moved on, but the jokes about what is ultimately a domestic violence case linger. Her foundation's website reads, Lorena's life story is proof that it's possible not only to survive abuse, but to thrive and rebuild a joyful, meaningful life on your own terms, even when it seems everyone thinks they can write your story for you. This episode was researched and written by Eileen McFarlane. Editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman. Script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back in two weeks' time. Thank you for listening, and please be safe.